This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Here's a quiz question for you. Who became famous for collaborating with Giuseppe Verdi as a librettist but composed his own diabolical tale of temptation in a Faustian operatic masterpiece? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Frequent Verdi librettist Arrigo Boito wrote only one complete opera in his lifetime, a take on Faust entitled Mephistophele. Sacrilegious, mystical, and captivatingly beautiful, this opera recounts the tale from the devil's perspective. This season at the Met, the title role is sung by bass baritone Christian Van Horn. I'm Naomi Baratera, and in this episode, Juilliard faculty member and Guild lecturer John J.H. Muller takes us through the compositional process of this multifaceted composer. Arrigo Boito has a curious place in music history. Uh, everybody knows him for two things. He was the librettist for Verdi's last two operas, Hotel Lou and Falstaff, and he's, of course, the composer of this opera, tonight's opera, Mephistofele, one of the very few Italian operas that we ever hear that was composed during the career of Verdi. Um, this dualism is really at the heart of the composer, and it's something I want to talk about uh, tonight a little bit. Uh, he had demonstrated musical ability as a child, went to the Milan Conservatory, which is more than Verdi did. He was rejected, uh, supposedly because of faulty counterpoint. That was a generation earlier. Uh, but uh, Boito did study there, so he was trained as a composer, trained as a musician. Uh, but throughout his life, he had tr a tremendous broad intellectual interests. Um, he was drawn, uh, kind of torn between his literary pursuits and musical pursuits. And he at various times was a music critic. He was a, uh, th a theorist, not of music, but a theorist of the theater, a theorist of the arts, a theorist of aesthetics. Um, he was also a librettist besides uh, the ones for Otello and Falstaff. Um, he did the revision of Simone Bocanegra, so the famous council chamber scene is partly a result of Boito's collaboration with Verdi in that opera. Um, he also did the libretto for La Gioconda of Ponchielli. Um, and he was a translator and translated Wagner's Rienzi and Tristan and Isolde for performance in Italy, 
had to be done in Italian, so he translated them into Italian. He translated Wagner's Wesendonk Lieder, Wagner's famous song cycle, into Italian as well. Uh, so again, he had quite a, a breadth of interests in literary areas and also in music. And because of this, I think he had some difficulty focusing on music, staying with a composition. His output is very, very small um, in terms of composition. And maybe nothing exemplifies this better than his opera Nerone, begun in the 1860s when he was in his 20s and left unfinished when he died in 1918. Uh, Nerone was an opera based on the story of the Emperor Nero. It was completed and performed after his death, one of the people involved in completing it was Toscanini. Uh, but really that opera, I think, summarizes his difficulty in staying with a musical project, working on it on and off for some 50 years. He actually offered the libretto to Verdi, who turned him down um, uh -huh. and uh, wasn't his subject. Um, in the 1860s, he became associated with an Italian movement known as the uh, Scapigliatura, uh, it means in Italian the unkempt ones, the disheveled ones, people who affected a bohemian kind of attitude. Uh, with the unification of Italy in the 1860s, there was a feeling on the part of younger artistic people, such as Boito, that the Italian arts, especially music, had to be um, reformed. Uh, there had to be a regeneration of the arts in Italy. Uh, he wanted to throw out all of the formulas of Italian opera, the conventions, the traditions, get rid of all that and try to get a new sort of structure in Italian opera. And he wrote some rather strong um, words about this subject. He once said that Italian art was stained like the wall of a brothel. Now, Boito never specifically criticized Verdi. But Verdi certainly was stung by these comments. He thought he was the one who was being uh, uh, accused of staining the walls of Italian art, so to speak. Um, and we'll get back to that subject of Verdi in a little bit. But one of the big questions, therefore, in the 1860s was, what direction was Italian opera going to take? What was the future of Italian opera? You know, we think of Italian opera in the second half of the 19th century, and we think it was all Verdi. Um, and the fact is, by the 1860s, Verdi's productivity had dropped off tremendously. He wrote two operas in the 1860s, La Forza and Don Carlo. Admittedly, two very ambitious projects, but just those two operas. And then after writing Aida in 1871, he really retired. So he wasn't really a force in the future of opera during this time period, even though Verdi's operas, the earlier ones, the famous ones like Rigoletto, Trovatore, Traviata, were being revived again and again. As far as what, what was the future of Italian opera, Italian composers didn't see Verdi as being the person who was showing the way to the future. And um, therefore, Boito, like other Italian composers, younger composers, looked to France. Meyerbeer was a tremendous influence. Um, Boito was quite taken by Meyerbeer, especially the opera Les Huguenots. And he thought looking to French grand opera could be a way of revitalizing Italian opera. The fact is, uh, Meyerbeer had an influence on Verdi as well. After all, Don Carlo was a French grand opera in its first uh, incarnation. 
first of its many incarnations. Um, and you can see this influence of grand opera, French grand opera, in um, Mephistophele, and I will point some of that out to you when we get to the music. Um, so, Boito collaborating with Verdi at the end of Verdi's career in the 1880s and 1890s. You know, having been a member of the Scapilatura, having uh, talked about the uh, criticizing the Italian arts, how did Verdi ever collaborate with Boito? Well, there had to be some fence mending taking place, and it was Verdi's publisher, Ricordi, who brought the two men together. And through a series of uh, dinners and dangling the bait of Shakespeare to Verdi, uh, Ricordi brought the two men together. And uh, so he wrote the uh, libretto for Otello and Falstaff, as I said, and actually roughed out a treatment for King Lear. Uh, but Verdi realized he was too old and was never going to be able to write one more opera after Falstaff, so that project never took place. Uh, they became very good friends at the end of Verdi's life, um, despite what had been said earlier on. Um, this revitalization of Italian opera, or the new direction of Italian opera, was really going to wait for Puccini and uh, uh, his um, contemporaries, the Verismo composers, at the very end of the 19th century, into the early 20th century. Uh, but it is important to keep in mind that while we uh, see Verdi as being the dominant figure for 50, 60 years in Italian opera, his productivity dropped off tremendously by the 1860s. Um, now on the subject of this opera, Mephistophele, uh, the subject matter was a natural for Boito, given his tremendous literary interests and also his interests in things that were going on uh, beyond the Alps, okay, uh, whether it be in Germany or whether it be in France. He felt that Gounod's Faust really had not done uh, um, justice to Goethe. And it's interesting that Goethe had actually conceived part two of Faust uh, with the idea that it should be set to music. He really thought it needed music. And since Mozart was dead at the time that Goethe wrote it, he thought the ideal composer would be Meyerbeer. Uh, as shocking as that may be to us today, he thought Meyerbeer had the qualities to set Faust uh, to music. Well, it turned out to be Boito, who of course takes the subject matter, but examines it from the standpoint of the devil, not so much from the standpoint of the philosopher Faust. Uh, the premiere, as you have on your sheet there, I give you some history of performances, was at La Scala, famous opera house in Milan, in 1868. You might wonder, how could a composer in his 20s, uh, how could he get his first opera performed at La Scala? Uh, well, there was some string pulling going on. His teacher at Milan was the principal conductor at La Scala, and so that was an in for Boito. And there were some other people also who were working to get this unknown young composer a premiere at La Scala. Um, however, except for the prologue, which is a glorious uh, section of music, it was not well received at all. Uh, first of all, the Milanese were pretty conservative, and there are some rather progressive elements, especially in the harmonic language, as I will point out to you in this opera. Um, also, Boito was the librettist, the composer, and the conductor. And the conducting, perhaps, was the bridge too far in this particular case. He really wasn't that accomplished a conductor at this point in his career and wasn't able to really hold his own piece together. It wasn't a very strong cast, and it was much too long. It was five and a half hours. Now, don't worry, you're not hearing that version 
Nobody does that version, okay? You're going to hear the revised version, which I'll talk a little bit about. Uh, the opera, did, at its premiere at uh, La Scala, the prologue actually was preceded by a preface, a spoken preface in which three actors playing the composer, a critic, and a member of the audience discuss the subject matter of Faust and Faust as a universal artwork. So they discuss, you might say, the aesthetics, the theory of art. Italians go to the opera to hear people sing. Uh, maybe this might have gone over in Germany, I don't know. Uh, but they certainly were not interested in a lot of theory on, 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 on art, and that was, a, that was a drawback right away. Um, and again, it was just the prologue that was successful. Uh, the failure of the work, as you can imagine, really damaged his self-confidence. Uh, here it was his first opera. He's a young guy in his 20s. He's pulled or torn between the world of music, the world of literature. This was not exactly a confidence builder for the composer. So he subjected it to extensive revisions, uh, removing several scenes completely. There's hardly a page of the opera that didn't have some kind of change made in it. And then, as you can see, a revised version was done in Bologna, in 1875, Bologna was a more progressive, open-minded city than was Milan. It always had been. It was the site of the very first uh, university, university in Italy. So it was a university town. They were more open to the new ideas. And then a second revision was done in Venice, and that's the version that's done today. That's what you'll be hearing, at least more or less, um, in tonight's performance. Um, it was in the Met's very first season at the Old House in 1883. And as you can see from my handout, Shaliapin made his La Scala debut in Mephistophele. And then, what is it, six years later, he made his Met debut in the same opera. Uh, but many of you probably know it from the famous city opera production from 1969, when it was sung by Norman Tregel, a great singing actor, and then later by Samuel Ramey. And uh, this Met production dates from 1999, um, done with Samuel Ramey. When it was done in 99, it had not been heard at the Met since 1926. It had gone all those years without a performance. And actually, it's been 18 years since the Met did it. Uh, that production was new in 1999. The production has been done in San Francisco, but it hasn't been done at the Met since then. Okay, so it's been quite a while. Now, I have some images here of some famous spaces, as Mephistopheles. That's Cesare Siepi. There's Norman Tregel in his famous uh, body stocking. So that was the City Opera production. And here we have, in this production, Samuel Ramey. And then finally, Yildar Abdurazakov in the same production. So it seems that what the bases have, or the devil has, is an inability to keep a shirt on. <laughs> and uh, I should tell you, uh, the red tie tonight is in honor of Mephistopheles. Uh, it was either do the lecture with the red tie or shirtless. I decided to, I decided to go with the tie. Okay, um, so those are some uh, famous bases. So to the music of this opera and Boito, I think the first thing to consider is how do you understand the style of an unfamiliar composer? What is your frame of reference? To give you an example, if you had gone to hear Puccini's La Fanciulla del West earlier in the season, if you didn't know the opera before, uh, you could certainly hear his earlier works in the opera. 
you could also hear the direction Puccini was taking. Uh, at that point in his career, you have a frame of reference for Puccini, one of our most popular and well-known opera composers. But in the case of Boito, this is the only piece we know. So what's our frame of reference going to be in this particular piece? Um, well, Verdi is usually our model for an Italian opera composer of the period, and yet, as I pointed out to you earlier, he really wasn't very active at this point in his career, the 1860s, the 1870s, that's the period of Mephistophele. Um, Verdi was really transforming the conventions of Italian opera. Even in Otello, you can still hear vestigial remnants of a caboletta and things like that, okay? Verdi wasn't trying to throw all of that out. He was working within those conventions. Boito wanted to get rid of all that stuff. And uh, so again, what's our frame of reference going to be for this composer? Stylistically, he's really very different from Verdi. And one of the things to listen for in terms of a difference is that Boito's ideas are often rather short. Um, rather short breath musical ideas that don't really evolve very much. They don't really get drawn out. Uh, he's not very expansive in that regard. So the arias that he does write, and there are some musical numbers in the opera, tend to be rather short. And they certainly don't develop that expansive quality we associate with later Verdi um, at all. Um, also, he's abandoned most of the formal uh, traditions of Italian opera. Um, he prefers for an aria more of a stanza-like format, say two verses with the same music. This was typical of French opera. It's not typical of Italian opera. So that would have been one of the French influences. His harmonic language, however, is striking. And he's doing things harmonically that you rarely would hear with, in Verdi, and you would never hear it for the amount of time we hear in Mephistophele. Now, maybe it's because of the subject matter. He's trying to create a language for the devil specifically and for the subject matter of the opera in general, and perhaps that drew from him this more chromatic, this more progressive language. The fact is Verdi was never interested in the supernatural. Uh, this just wasn't the world he lived in. Verdi dealt with a more realistic kind of uh, uh, story, subject matter, and uh, that might be another reason as well. Um, certainly there's extensive use of chorus in this opera, extensive use, or some use of the dance. Those were typical features of French grand opera. The idea of some kind of religious subject matter, uh, that was typical of French grand opera as well. So the Meyerbeer influence is a strong one in this opera. Um, this is an opera that needs to be seen. Now, you could say, well, every opera needs to be seen. They are meant to be done on the stage. But some operas say Trovatore. You can simply put on a recording and uh, maybe hear a better performance than you'd hear today. Uh, you, you can just listen to the music of Trovatore. You don't necessarily need to see it. But Mephistophele, you need to see a great singing actor do this role. And some things that maybe don't work as well when you're just listening to it on a recording will come to life more when you actually see the performance. I think that's very important in uh, getting to know this piece better. Um, okay, so to the music. Uh, the famous prologue creates two worlds. The composer's got to create two worlds in here, uh, that of heaven and, of course, the devil, uh, the world of hell. Uh, the work opens with the famous fanfares, which uh, alternate with ethereal woodwind writing. 
And these fanfares are really spectacular. And some of the sound is coming off stage, and then later it's coming from the pit. And this antiphonal idea you get uh, is one of the reasons you need to hear it live in the opera house. A recording isn't going to do justice to that. So you get this very majestic and then ethereal writing uh, suggesting the world of heaven and the angels. And uh, there's also a chorus, and through a subtle change in harmony, uh, Boito keeps propelling the, the melody forward and forward and forward. It's a very memorable tune he writes for the angels. And then Mephisto makes his appearance, and it is uh, an appearance. He doesn't come on stage. It's more like the devil appears. And uh, there's a very strong contrast. There's a sudden change of key, and then there's some music that he actually calls Boito Escherzo. And it's in the nature of a scherzo, uh, lots of grace notes, lots of staccato, very rapid declamation of the text uh, for the bass, um, and use of the bassoon. Listen for the bassoon. The woody quality of that instrument is a wonderful contrast to the majesty of the brass and, as I said, the ethereal writing for the uh, higher woodwinds um, in the uh, depiction of heaven. I remember the first time I heard the prologue, it was on an old LP my family had. Uh, on one side was the Verdi Te Deum, and on the other side was the prologue de Mephistopheles. Um, I was just starting out in opera, and I couldn't, couldn't understand, how could somebody sing so fast in Italian? Um, I just couldn't get over the bass, uh, articulating this so quickly. But that's part of the way Boito creates the devil. Um, so, my first two examples, and they're identified on your sheet, uh, they're going to run consecutively. I picked this up in the middle of the chorus to give you a feel of the angelic music, and then it will lead directly into the appearance of Mephistopheles.
instrument you heard there was the bassoon. Again, very much creates a sound for, uh, for the devil in this opera. Uh, some of this prologue music is going to come back when Margarita has her redemption, and then at the very end of the opera when Faust himself is redeemed. Uh, one of the things that uh, Boito was very concerned about was structure. And those two returns give the opera a sense of structure that it really wouldn't have without them. For all of his concern for structure, it's really made up mostly of a series of rather small little sections. It was Verdi who really had more of a sense of the overall uh, plan of an opera. Um, speaking of Verdi, his initial view of this uh, prologue, he asked, why if you're in heaven is there so much dissonance? And uh, he seems to have been a little bit literal about it, uh, but later he came to admire the work, as he again came to admire Boito as a, as a librettist. Um, now in the opening of Act One, there's extensive use of chorus, there's some dancing scene. I'm not going to play any of that for you, but uh, that's what you'll be seeing. But in the second scene of Act One, uh, the tenor Faust has come back from a walk, and he's contemplating nature, and he sings a short aria, Dai Campi, Dai Prati, from the fields, from the meadows. And this is a nice example of the rather short breath, melodic quality of uh, Boito. Um, here it's just an excerpt uh, sung by Placido Domingo.
that's a brief section of what is a rather short aria. Um, Faust is, opens the Bible, he's about to read from the Gospels, and all of a sudden when the Bible opens, uh, Mephistopheles lets out a roar and makes his appearance uh, before Faust, and he sings the famous line from the play, I am the spirit who always denies. Uh, the devil is the spirit of negation. And in Boito's setting, he sings this to a descending chromatic line as if to suggest that gradual descent is the spirit of denial. Um, and this, the music he sings is in tremendous distinction uh, to Faust's earlier reflection. Faust is in a reflective mood, and once again, the devil's music is very much different. Now, in this performance, the uh, bass is Cesare Siepi. second stanza of that, and you hear those repeated no's on the part of Mephistophele, that's the spirit of denial. Um, some basses will sing each one of those no's a little bit different. Uh, Trego would almost whisper the first two, and then in the second stanza he'd bellow them out. It's something to listen to uh, uh, from tonight's uh, uh, bass, uh, Christopher Van Horn, and see what he does with those words no in this particular scene. Uh, Faust accepts the bargain, and they sing something a little short duet that almost might remind you of a caboletta from an Italian opera, but not quite, but, but similar. Um, I'm not going to play any music from act, uh, the Act 2, Scene 1. This is the garden scene, uh, and he opens it in a very pastoral style, conveying the innocence of Margarita. And he contrasts musically the two pairs, uh, that is Faust and Margarita, and Mephistophele, and his uh, different kind of wooing of Martha. Uh, so that's something to listen for in there. There's a brief aria for Faust as he sings to Margarita, and then a series of lyrical exchanges between the two of them, but again, rather short-breathed musical material, never really developing into the kind of large-scale duet you might have found in Verdi, especially in the 1860s 
or 70s. Um, and then into uh, Act 2, Scene 2, this is the Witch's Sabbath. This is the Walpurgisnacht scene. A great deal of chromaticism. You'll hear the bassoon again. And uh, there's an aria, kind of like an aria in here for Mephistophele, Ecco il mondo, wherein he's supposed to hold up a crystal globe as if it's the earth, okay? And he's singing about, it's kind of his contempt for the earth and the people who inhabit it, and at the end he smashes it. If I'm not mistaken, in pictures I've seen of this production, it looks like Sam Raimi was holding a balloon. Uh, we'll just have to see tonight what they're using, and maybe it gets popped, but that's the idea. It's a famous scene in the opera, um, and here we have Samuel Raimi singing it. <laughs> and Mephistopheles says it's actually Medusa. It's the Medusa. Uh, there's some very effective choral writing in the uh, Witch's Sabbath scene, and especially the concluding fugue that he wrote for them. Um, and that's something to listen for in the performance. Uh, the prison scene, which makes up Act Three, along with the prologue, is the best music in the opera. Uh, this has some really fine writing, and he captures different sides of Margarita through several short arias and also through a very dramatic recitative. Uh, there's some very chromatic, that is very progressive harmonic writing at the start of the act. It's conveying both the setting, she's in prison, she's awaiting execution, but it's also conveying what's inside of her, her emotional state. And again, it's a kind of a harmonic language you would not generally associate with Verdi. Um, and then she sings a, a two-stanza song, L'altra notte, uh, where in one stanza she sings about the death of her child. She, of course, drowned the illegitimate child she had with Faust. Um, and then she sings about the death of her mother. Faust had given her a sleeping potion that actually killed her mother. Um, so she's responsible for the death of both of these people. And I'm going to play you the second stanza, and there's a line in here where she sings, My sad soul, like the wood sparrow, flies far, far away. And on the word for fly in Italian, vola, there's some coloratura writing. Uh, it's a tone painting suggesting the idea of flight. The role of Margarita is not really a coloratura role at all. Um, he simply uses that kind of writing to illustrate 
that word. Um, and at the close of each stanza, there's a very sudden major minor uh, conflict. Uh, seems to me it suggests uh, her desire to be free on the one hand and the reality that she's awaiting her execution. And it's a very effective clash of a major and then minor chord. Uh, so here is Montserrat Caballé uh, doing the second stanza of L'Altra Notte. Faust and Mephisto enter the, uh, the cell, and there's a beautiful short duet, all sung very softly uh, as they sing about wanting to be away from there, and then their reverie is shattered by Mephistopheles, who tells them they've, they've got to get moving. So Margarita is torn, of course, between Faust, but she starts hearing the call of the angels. Uh, this is in a very dramatic recitative, and then we get some of the music from the prologue uh, for her salvation. This is where Gounod's opera ends, of course, with the uh, redemption, salvation of Gretchen, uh, but, or uh, uh, Margarita. But there's more to uh, Faust. Uh, the act four is the night of the classical Sabbath, where they go back into ancient times, and there's a scene with Helen of Troy. And uh, throughout, throughout act four in this classical scene, the harp is used extensively to create a sound world for uh, the ancient world. Uh, the idea of a lyre, I think, the idea of one plucking the lyre, and you hear the harp a great deal in there. Uh, in some productions, and it was really Boito's desire, Helen and Margarita are sung by the same person because they represent different sides of this idea of das ewige Weibliche, the eternal feminine, 
Okay, and in this production, it's going to be two different sopranos tonight. Uh, but it, uh, you could argue it really should be the same person because it's different sides of the same concept. Um, and uh, she sings a short aria, or he sings a short aria to Helen that develops into an ensemble. And then there's a nice love duet that develops into a very large ensemble and chorus, which is going to end act four. And I have a section of that for you here. act, or the epilogue, I should say, the Met, to avoid a third intermission, um, is combining acts two and three. And I'm discussing this opera in Boito's format, okay, of a prologue, four acts, and an epilogue. But tonight you'll really see it as three acts. Don't be confused in that regard. Um, in the epilogue of the introduction, we see Faust in his laboratory. It's all fallen apart. It's all dilapidated. And there is a wonderful introduction here. And once again, the presence of the bassoon is very striking and some very chromatic, very forward-looking harmonies suggesting the uh, uh, dilapidated state of things. And uh, why don't I, let, let's hear that, okay?
And then Faust begins to contrast the real and the ideal. Uh, his love for Margarita was real, she represented reality. His love for Helen of Troy was an ideal. And he says, reality brought suffering and the ideal was a dream. And then he starts to have a new dream, a dream of a tranquil world uh, that becomes a vision of heaven. And Mephistophele realizes he's starting to lose Faust. And uh, so he begins to sing the melody from the big ensemble you just heard, as if that melody would suggest to, to, to Faust the hedonistic lifestyle that he had been seeking. But that melody sounds very different when it's sung by a bass than when it's sung by a soprano and a tenor, and it does not draw Faust back. Rather, he hears more and more of the angelic music, and he himself is redeemed, and then the opera ends with the uh, fanfares with which it had begun. Uh, so here is the finale to the epilogue.
Um, so getting back to my earlier point, what's our frame of reference for Boito? How do we evaluate this composer, this particular opera, when we have nothing else of his really to compare it to? Well, again, his harmonic language is really very special, and that's something I would listen for in the work. And his approach to melody, it's a different approach than Verdi's, doesn't have the breadth. Uh, the best of this opera, I think, is terrific. Um, and uh, maybe I'll close with a comment that uh, one writer on Boito made. Uh, he's an incomplete rather than an inconsequential composer. And I'm having a hard time figuring out how could he have written some of this music that is so extraordinary, and how can the rest of some of it just be sort of ordinary and uh, just becoming just recitative and a short little bit of melody? Uh, I guess he just didn't compose enough to get it all together. This, after all, was his first opera. Uh, revised several times, but I would repeat that comment, uh, an incomplete rather than an inconsequential composer. And I would certainly agree with that. And the prologue and the prison scene is top drawer as far as I'm concerned. And it's great to be able to see the opera, hear it after an absence of 18 years here in New York. Thank you. That was John J.H. Muller delving into the devilish world of Mephistophele. To keep up with all the excitement of the season, be sure to follow the Met Opera Guild and the Metropolitan Opera on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be back for a lecture on Puccini's operatic triple bill, Il Tritico. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. <laughs>